eighth day. Bend the stubborn heart and will, melt the frozen warm the chill, guide the steps that go astray. The Fruits of the Holy Ghost The gifts of the Holy Ghost perfect the supernatural virtues by enabling us to practice them with greater docility to divine inspiration. As we grow in the knowledge and love of God under the direction of the Holy Ghost, our service becomes more sincere and generous, the practice of virtue more perfect. Such acts of virtue leave the heart filled with joy and consolation and are known as fruits of the Holy Ghost. These fruits in turn render the practice of virtue more attractive and become a powerful incentive for still greater efforts in the service of God, to who to serve whom is to reign. Amen. Let us pray. Come, O Divine Spirit, fill my heart with thy heavenly fruits, thy charity, joy, peace, patience, benignity, goodness, faith, mildness, and temperance, that I may never weary in the service of God, but by continued faithful submission to thy inspiration may merit to be united eternally with thee in the love of the Father and the Son. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy Spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who has instructed the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant that by the gift of the same Spirit we may be always truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation, through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear viewers, today we temporarily interrupt the series of spiritual conferences you've been listening to on the gifts of the Holy Ghost in order to present a lecture on the Vigil of Pentecost, which is celebrated tomorrow, the Saturday before Pentecost, in order to give you an opportunity to enter into and to understand the spirit of the Church's liturgy on this day. The Importance of Pentecost Eve In order to understand the importance of Pentecost Eve and to appreciate the unusual solemnity of its impressive ceremonial, let us begin by saying a word about the Feast of Pentecost itself. We need to situate that immensely important feast within the structure of the liturgical year in order to understand the supreme dignity of the vigil which precedes it. The Roman Missal refers to five feasts as a diem sacratissimum, a most holy day. These five feasts merit a special commemoration even in the canon of the Mass, in the prayer called the Communicantes. These five feasts are Easter, Pentecost, Epiphany, the Ascension, and Christmas. Among these, however, the two greatest feasts are Easter and Pentecost, commemorating respectively the resurrection of the Lord and the sending of the Holy Ghost. We know that Catholicism is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Covenant, whose outward appearances, observances, and sacrifices have now been replaced by those of the New Law. It is fitting that the two principal feasts of the New Law, Easter and Pentecost, whose observance goes back to the first age of the Church, should have been so clearly prefigured in the Old Testament. In the Old Law, the two primary feasts of the year were the Passover, 
commemorating the flight of the Hebrews from the slavery of Egypt, and the Feast of Weeks, when 50 days after the Passover, God gave the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. In addition to being called the Feast of Weeks, the name Pentecost, from the Greek for 50 days, was already employed in the Old Testament times, as we see, for example, in the second book of Maccabees. The number 50 has a special solemnity, since there is a week of weeks in between the two feasts, seven times seven, a plenitude, a completion. The book of Leviticus explains how the people of Israel were to commemorate the memory of the giving of the law. Even unto the morrow after the seventh week be expired, that is to say fifty days, and so you shall offer a new sacrifice to the Lord. Just as the people of Israel had been constituted by the giving of the ancient and figurative law, so too on Pentecost Sunday the gospel was promulgated, and the new people of God, formed in the upper room around the person of the Blessed Mother, went forth on its mission to convert the world. Dom Guéranger aptly remarks, The Pentecost, the fiftieth day, was honored by the promulgation of the Ten Commandments of the Divine Law, and every following year the Israelites celebrated the great event by a solemn festival. But their Pentecost was figurative, like their Passover. There was to be a second Pentecost for all people, as there was to be a second Passover for the redemption of the whole world. The Passover, with all its triumphant joys, belongs to the Son of God, the conqueror of death. Pentecost belongs to the Holy Ghost, for it is the day whereon he began his mission into this world, which henceforth was to be under his law. But how different are the two Pentecosts, the one on the rugged rocks of Arabia amidst thunder and lightning, promulgates a law that is written on tablets of stone. The second is in Jerusalem, on which God's anger has not as yet been manifested, because it still contains within its walls the first fruits of that new people over whom the spirit of love is to reign. In this second Pentecost, the heavens are not overcast, nor is the roar of thunder heard. The hearts of men are not stricken with fear, as when God spake on Sinai. Repentance and gratitude are the sentiments now uppermost. A divine fire burns within their souls and will spread throughout the whole world. In the Church's liturgical calendar, Easter and Pentecost are symmetrical, and both have a highly privileged octave which admits of the celebration of no other feasts, and each day of the octave has its own proper Mass, whereas in the other octaves that traditionally extend the great feasts of the calendar, the Mass of the feast is simply repeated or commemorated. Alone among all the other feasts of the year, the matins or nighttime office of Easter and Pentecost octaves have a special form consisting of only three psalms. Aside from these liturgical hints as to the importance of the two feasts, the point which most concerns us here is that Easter and Pentecost are both preceded by an important vigil. This is the case for any great feast, of course, but the vigils of Easter and Pentecost cannot be impeded by any feast whatsoever, and the lengthy vigil ceremonies of these two days have a unique form unlike any other vigil of the liturgical year. In English, Pentecost is sometimes referred to as Whit Sunday, making the vigil of Pentecost Whit Sun Eve. The allusion to the color white may be surprising on a day which uses red as the liturgical color, but the allusion here is not to the priest's vestments, 
but rather to the albs or white robes worn by the newly baptized Christians. Take this white robe and keep it spotless until you arrive at the judgment seat of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you may be rewarded with everlasting life, says the priest at the end of the rite of baptism. As we shall see, it is the baptismal orientation of the Pentecost Vigil which explains much of its character. In the Roman liturgy, as it developed over the centuries and was codified after the Council of Trent by the great Pope St. Pius V, a vigil is a day of preparation for a great feast. Just as an octave prolongs the memory of a great feast for a whole week to enable our souls to be penetrated by the spiritual mystery of the feast we have celebrated, so too a vigil before the feast plays the role of preparing the ground of our soul for these graces. The impulse of the Church in establishing vigils derives from the same sentiment of Scripture which says, Before prayer, prepare thy soul. As Blessed Columba Marmion reminds us, we know that it is especially by the liturgy that the Church brings up the souls of her children in order to make them like unto Jesus and thus perfect the image of Christ, which is the very form of our predestination. The impressive and, in a way, unusual vigils which precede Easter and Pentecost are the way that the liturgy prepares our souls for the celebration of these two most important feasts. The Fasting and Abstinence of Pentecost As one of the most important feasts of the year, essentially equal to Easter in terms of importance, Pentecost is traditionally prepared for by a day of fast and abstinence. In the traditional ascetic discipline of the Church, as practiced until just after the middle of the 20th century, fasting was observed not only on the weekdays of Lent and the seasonal Ember Days, but also on the vigil of four great feasts, Pentecost, Christmas, the Assumption of Mary, and All Saints' Day. Liturgically, of course, the season of Easter goes all the way until the end of the Pentecost octave, and we all know that the practice of fasting is incompatible with the joys of the Paschal season. How then can we fast on Pentecost Eve, which technically falls before the end of the Easter season? First of all, Pentecost Eve does fall a full 50 days after the end of the Lenten fast on Holy Saturday. More to the point, however, we should remember that in the traditional calendar, the Paschal season is not simply one undifferentiated series of days as it tends to be in the Reformed calendar. The season of Easter overall contains four main parts the octave of Easter, the week-long celebration that prolongs the great feast of our Lord's resurrection, then Paschal time in the strict sense, which brings us up to 40 days to the eve of the Ascension, then the Ascension with its octave, and finally, on the 50th day, the great feast of Pentecost, followed by its octave. For the Roman Church, the feast of the Ascension in particular has historically been the absolute line in the sand as far as fasting is concerned. Abstinence from meat is enjoined on the Fridays of Paschal Tide as during the rest of the year, but no fasts are prescribed before the Ascension. Many centuries ago, when the use of the Rogation Days, the three days immediately before the Ascension, was adopted into the Roman calendar from Gaul, the Church of Rome emphatically did not follow the Frankish custom of fasting on those three days, but only of abstaining from meat. Can the children of the marriage fast as long as the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. 
But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. The fast of Pentecost Eve, therefore, does not contradict the joys of the Paschal season, but prepares us for a worthy celebration of the feast, and reminds us of the watch of the apostles in the upper room before they had received the visit of the Holy Ghost. Comparison with the Easter Vigil Since Easter and Pentecost are comparable in solemnity, the best way for us to enter into the mystery of Pentecost Eve is probably to compare the vigil ceremonies of these two days. They are almost identical in their overall structure and in most of their details. We shall note the occasional differences and explain their relevance to the Pentecost Vigil. You may recall that the Easter Vigil, celebrated on Holy Saturday, consists of four main parts. First, there is the service sometimes called the Lucinarium, a reference to the ancient lamplighting ceremony when the great oil lamps of the early Christian basilicas were lit in preparation for vespers before the sun went down. In point of fact, the Easter Vigil begins after the Office of Known and concludes with the singing of vespers at the end of the Vigil Mass. By the early Middle Ages, when the Easter Vigil no longer lasted so long as originally, because there was no longer a huge number of baptisms to perform throughout the night, the ceremony ended in time for Mass to be celebrated well before midnight, and eventually the whole service even came to be anticipated to the morning of Holy Saturday, making of it a vigil in the sense of a true forefeast, a day of preparation before the actual feast. In the unique form of the archaic lamplighting ceremony which survived on Holy Saturday, the Lucernarium consists of three beautiful ceremonies, the blessing of the new fire outside the church doors, the Lumen Christi ceremony or light of Christ, when the deacon carries the triple-branched candle into church and successively lights each of the three branches, and finally, the singing of the exultant, during which the paschal candle is blessed and lit from the triple candle, symbolizing the resurrection of the Lord. We shall return later to the symbolism of the Paschal Candle for the Pentecost Vigil. The second part of the Easter Vigil, by far the longest, is the reading of twelve Old Testament prophecies, each of which is followed by a collect, indicating the perennially valid spiritual interpretation of these Old Testament readings. The collects are introduced by Flectamus Genua, Let us bend our knees, the solemn invitation to kneel. The third part of the Easter Vigil is the blessing of the font and administration of baptism, followed by the singing of the Litany of the Saints. The fourth and final part of this long vigil ceremony is the celebration of Holy Mass, at the end of which is sung an abbreviated form of the Office of Vespers. Since the long vigil ceremonies would have more than filled the interval normally lasting between known and Vespers, by the time the Mass ended, the usual Vespers already being exceeded, a shortened form of that office is appended, since it would be unthinkable simply to skip the first Vespers of Easter. But this mini-Vespers consists of only one psalm and the Magnificat. Comparing the vigils of Easter and Pentecost, the main difference we note is that the entire first part, the blessing of the fire and the Easter candle, is entirely omitted on Pentecost Eve. And so the Pentecost Vigil has in common with the Easter Vigil only the three other parts we have mentioned. To understand the particular genius of the Pentecost Vigil, therefore, let us now look more closely at each of these three parts. The Vigil Readings 
As on Holy Saturday, the ceremony begins with the sanctuary draped in violet, although on Pentecost Eve, the statues are not covered. The altar candles are not lit at the beginning of the ceremony, and the celebrating clergy wear violet vestments, the deacon and subdeacon in penitential folded chasubles, unlike their usual dalmatic and tunical, which are vestments of joy. Unlike on Holy Saturday, however, the Paschal candle is not in its stand, for that candle representing the risen Christ has disappeared since it was extinguished ten days ago on the Feast of the Ascension. The other physical difference, oh how significant, is that the Blessed Sacrament resides in the tabernacle, which had been empty for the Easter Vigil, since on the lugubrious day of Holy Saturday, the sacred body of Christ lay dead in its tomb. Now, however, Christ can die no more, and it is primarily by the presence of his glorified flesh in our churches under the form of bread that he fulfills the promise made at his ascension. Behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. At the Pentecost Vigil, unlike on Holy Saturday, only six Old Testament prophecies are read. It seems that Pentecost originally also had 12 readings, but that the number was never increased again after St. Gregory the Great had reduced it to six. It is possible that the smaller number of catechumens being baptized at Pentecost justifies the relative shortness of this part of the ceremony compared with Easter, since the final exorcisms and instructions given in the narthex to the catechumens while the people in the nave listened to the readings would not take up as much time. In any case, the six readings selected for Pentecost are chosen from among those read at Easter, although the order is different. The three readings from the Easter Vigil that were followed by the singing of a tract are also followed by a tract at the Pentecost Vigil. A collect is prayed after each reading, distilling the spiritual essence of the readings, but these six collects are entirely different from any used at Easter, even though they express similar ideas. Another difference is that the collects are not preceded by a genuflection, in deference to the general principle by which penitential genuflections are omitted in Eastertide. The Easter Vigil takes place on the last day of Lent, whereas the Pentecost Vigil liturgically falls during the Easter season. Whereas the first reading on Holy Saturday is the very long passage from Genesis, recounting the origin of all things, culminating with that of the first father of our fallen race, on Pentecost Eve, the first reading, which is in fact the beginning of the whole ceremony, is the story of the testing of Abraham. This supremely important page of sacred history is read in third place on Holy Saturday, after the stories of the creation and the flood. The passage about the sacrifice of Isaac is one of the most important pieces of typology in the Bible. Providentially, the historically true episodes of the Old Testament also take on a deeper spiritual significance because they foreshadow their true fulfillment in Christ. In this case, the sacrifice of a beloved only son, but in the end, death does not have the last word. If the readings of the Easter Vigil were to be curtailed, or the Pentecost Vigil ceremonies to be suppressed, as in the reforms of the 1950s, then at no point in the liturgical year would this essential passage of sacred history be proclaimed in church. Why does the Pentecost Vigil begin not with Adam, the first father of our race, but with Abraham, the patriarch of the Hebrews, whom the liturgy christens as the father of our faith, pater fidei nostre? 
You may recall that in the Gospels, St. Luke traces the human genealogy of our Lord 77 generations all the way back to Adam, whereas St. Matthew, at the very start of the New Testament, begins instead with Abraham. Amalarius of Metz, the 9th century liturgical scholar, offers this explanation for placing Abraham and not Adam at the beginning of the Pentecost vigil. He writes, The readings call to mind two fathers, one according to the flesh, the other according to the spirit. Adam, who is recalled in the first reading, is the carnal father with whom we all originated. He sinned by not obeying God's command. A victory canticle does not accompany him. Abraham is our spiritual father, because by imitating his faith we are made his sons and called God's people. Through his obedience and the sacrifice of his son, he made restitution for our first father's offense of disobedience. A victory canticle rightly follows him, for he killed the vice of disobedience. The canticle referred to by Amalarius is the tract, which is sung on both Easter and Pentecost after several of the vigil readings. The first reading at the Easter vigil is not followed by a canticle, but the reading about Abraham, which at Pentecost is the very first reading, is followed by this chant. It is fitting on this day when we pray for the coming of the Holy Ghost, who, as the Creed says, has spoken through the prophets, that the Church provide us amply with a selection from the Scriptures inspired by this spirit of truth. You can meditate on these readings and pray with the collects in your Missal, since we cannot consider them all here, but it would be amiss of us not to quote at least one of these very rich prayers, since, as I said, they distill the whole essence of the Scriptures as understood by the Church, who is their only true interpreter. Here, for example, is the colic that follows the second reading. O God, who by the light of the New Testament hast expounded the miracles wrought in ages past, so that the Red Sea might be an image of the sacred font, and the race delivered from the bondage of Egypt should prefigure the sacraments of the Christian people, grant that all nations who have obtained by the merit of faith the privilege of Israel may be born anew by partaking of thy spirit. You see how the liturgy takes us from the letter of Scripture and brings us into its spiritual meaning. The blessing of the font and the litanies. The blessing of the font which follows the prophecies is the ritual most like the corresponding section of the Easter Vigil, being identical in almost every respect. In cathedrals and parish churches, the procession goes to the font led by the Paschal candle. On Holy Saturday, of course, this candle candle had just been blessed, and so it was removed from its stand for the procession. In a fine piece of liturgical symbolism, the Paschal candle is extinguished after the Gospel on Ascension Thursday and then removed from the sanctuary after Mass on that day, so that for the Ascension-tide portion of the Easter season, the candle representing the risen Lord is no longer seen. For the Pentecost vigil, the candle is brought forth again from the sacristy so that it may be used at the blessing of the font as on Holy Saturday. The sacred liturgy is open to symbolic interpretations on many levels, and so the disappearance and then reappearance of the Paschal candle can be seen as the dramatic liturgical fulfillment of Christ's promise. I tell you the truth. It is expedient to you that I go, for if I go not, the paraclete will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The candle itself certainly represents our Lord, especially in the context of Eastertide, but the flame invites us to discern the sending of the Holy Ghost. 
who at Pentecost took on the form of tongues of fire. The Lord withdrew his earthly presence, but he has fulfilled his promise to send the Holy Ghost. And so the candle reappears. This candle on both Holy Saturday and Pentecost Eve also represents the column of light, which led the Hebrews on their flight from Egypt. The entire ceremony of blessing the font is identical to that of Holy Saturday. The only difference is the collect which the priest recites before entering the baptistry, which on the Pentecost vigil goes like this. Grant we beseech thee, O Almighty God, that we which here observe the day whereon thou didst send forth thy Holy Spirit may in such wise be influenced with heavenly desires that we may ever thirst for the waters of life. It would take too long to comment upon all the prayers and exorcisms and beautiful preface which are used to bless the baptismal water. The preface especially is full of allusions to water in the history of salvation. Nonetheless, at the vigil of Pentecost, how could we fail to note that this, re- this reference in the preface? The Spirit, in the very beginning of the world, moved over the waters, that even then the nature of water might receive the virtue of sanctification. We will make just a general remark upon this solemn blessing of the font, which applies equally to Easter and Pentecost. This impressive ceremony underlines the unity of the liturgical year, which is not a disjointed succession of feasts and seasons, but a coherent whole, which makes present in the Church today the graces merited by our Savior in the various mysteries of his sacred life upon the earth. The third-ranking great feast of the year is Epiphany. Although the Church of Rome does not keep Epiphany as a baptismal feast, as is the custom of the Eastern churches, both Catholic and dissident, the Roman ritual nonetheless contains a beautiful blessing of water on Epiphany Eve, which is therefore called to our mind as well when the font is blessed. The Feast of Epiphany commemorates not only the visit of the royal magi, but also the baptism of the Lord and the wedding at Cana. It would be misleading to see these three mysteries as if they were unrelated, however, for they are all manifestations of the Lord. That is even the meaning of the word epiphany, manifestation. The mind of the church will be clearer if we consider the antiphon that is sung at the blessing of the epiphany water. It says, This day is the church joined unto the heavenly bridegroom, since Christ has washed away her sins in the Jordan. The wise men hasten with gifts to the marriage supper of the king, and they that sit together make merry with water turned into wine. Here you see the three mysteries are not simply listed. They are, as it were, mixed together. The baptism of our Lord is his wedding, and the magi bring their gifts to the marriage feast, and we all become the wedding guests overjoyed by the good wine. In fact, the common theme... The one overarching mystery uniting all the mysteries of our Lord's life is the nuptial mystery. The blessing of the font, therefore, when the candle is dipped into the water, reminds us of the Lord's own baptism and thus of epiphany. During the blessing of the font, whether at Easter or Pentecost, when the paschal candle is plunged into the water, the priest sings, May the virtue of the Holy Ghost descend into all the water of this font. And then, breathing into the water, he adds, Make the whole substance of this water fruitful unto regeneration. The prayers even refer to the font as an immaculate womb, and the newly regenerated Christians are referred to as the offspring of our mother, the Church. Therefore, 
The symbolic Easter and Pentecost font blessing also evokes the Epiphany mystery of our Lord's baptism, which, as I said a moment ago, is described in the Office of the Epiphany as the Lord's nuptials, the celebration of his wedding with the Church. The union of the candle and the font, the fire and the water, illustrates this point. By drawing a comparison, which might be strange at first sight, between the baptism and the marriage of Christ, the sacred liturgy is but following the teaching of St. Paul, who said, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and delivered himself up for it, that he might sanctify it, cleansing it by the laver of water in the word of life, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. The association of baptism with Pentecost goes back to the very beginnings of the Church, indeed to the very first Pentecost itself. For we read in chapter 2 of the book of Acts that 3,000 souls were baptized following the Pentecost sermon of St. Peter, our first Pope. At the end of the 4th century, Pope Siricius wrote a letter to the Bishop of Tarragon in which he mentioned that aside from the case of infants, who should of course be baptized soon after birth, baptisms should be solemnly conferred at Easter and Pentecost. Pope Leo the Great said the same to the bishops of Sicily not long thereafter. It seems that in the early church, baptism was conferred at Pentecost, especially for those converts who were indisposed at Easter or whose preparation was not yet complete. This year, especially, when many churches could not publicly celebrate the Vigil of Easter, we can appreciate the traditional wisdom of this ancient practice of the Church in providing a second feast for solemn baptism. After the font has been blessed, baptisms ideally now follow, and then, as the clergy process back to the altar, the litany of the saints is sung. This is a beautiful fulfillment of the first prophecy heard at the beginning of the vigil, when God said to Abraham, Because thou hast done this thing, and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven, and as the sand which is upon the seashore. Who are these multitudinous true true children of Abraham, if not the saints, the innumerable crowd that we see in the liturgy of all saints, as the citizens of the church triumphant? And so, as the newly baptized Christians retake their seats, we sing to all the saints and ask for their intercession. The Vigil Mass of Pentecost Having lain a while prostrate at the altar steps after their return to the sanctuary, when the final section of the litany is sung, the priest and ministers go to the sacristy to vest in red vestments while the sanctuary is prepared for Mass. The violet altar hangings are taken away and the candles are lit. Flowers and relics may adorn the altar. As at the Easter Vigil, there is no intro at Antiphon, and the Kyrie is sung at the conclusion of the litany as the priest begins Mass. Unlike on Holy Saturday, however, when the only Mass celebrated in a church is the solemn Vigil Mass, attended by all the other clergy, on Pentecost Eve it is permitted for priests to offer private low Masses in addition to attending the solemn celebration of the Vigil. In that case, the Missal does provide an introit, cum sanctificatus fuero, taken from the book of Ezekiel. I shall be sanctified in you, I will gather you from every land, and I will pour upon you clean water, and you shall be cleansed from all your filthiness, and I will give you a new spirit. That same introit had already been used on the fourth Wednesday of Lent, 
a day which in ancient times was the date of the ceremony called the Greater Scrutiny, a final preparation for the catechumens who would be baptized at Easter, another reminder of the baptismal character of this Pentecost vigil. In any case, at the principal mass, celebrated after the long vigil ceremonies we have been describing, this introit is not used. An introit is, in principle, the entrance chant, and since the people and clergy have already been present for several hours, such a chant would not serve its inherent purpose. Just like on Holy Saturday, the priest incenses the altar, and after he intones the Gloria, the bells are rung. Also like on Holy Saturday, the incense accompanies the singing of the gospel, but the servers do not carry their candles. Different historical speculations have tried to explain the origin of this custom, but whatever it may be, this omission reminds us that the vigil is truly a day of preparation, but it is not yet the feast. For that matter, just before the gospel, a single Alleluia was sung, followed by a tract, just like on Holy Saturday, rather than the greater Alleluia sung every other day of Eastertide. Since fire inevitably reminds us of the Holy Ghost, the omission of the acolytes' candles at the gospel reminds us that we are waiting for the feast and not yet fully celebrating it. Unlike at the Easter Vigil, an offertory verse is sung at the Pentecost Vigil Mass. Beginning today, the preface of the Holy Ghost is used, which will be the case for the whole octave. O Holy Lord, Father Almighty, everlasting God, through Christ our Lord, who ascending over all the heavens and sitting on thy right hand, as at this time and according to his word did send down the Holy Ghost upon the children of his adoption, wherefore all peoples upon the earth rejoice with exceeding great joy. We mentioned at the beginning that the five principal feasts of the Lord have the privilege of introducing a variation in the prayer of the canon called the Communicantes. For Pentecost, this proper Communicantes is as follows. Praying in union with and keeping the most holy day of the Pentecost, whereon the Holy Ghost appeared to the apostles in countless tongues. Even greater than the other great feasts, however, Pentecost shares with Easter the privilege of having also a proper version of the Hank Igitur, the prayer said while the priest spreads his hands over the oblation just before the consecration. This unique form of the Hank Igitur, prayed during the octaves of Easter and Pentecost, commends the neophytes, the newly baptized Christians, to the mercy of God, and underlines the distinctive baptismal character of these two feasts. We therefore beseech thee, O Lord, to be appeased and to accept this oblation of our service, as also of thy whole family, which we make unto thee on behalf of these also, whom thou hast vouchsafed to bring to a new birth, by water and the Holy Ghost, giving them remission of all their sins. It is curious that the reform of 1955, which removed all the baptismal rites from the Vigil of Pentecost and made it into a typical Mass, nonetheless kept the baptismal hank igitur for the feast and octave of Pentecost. The consecration of the body and blood of the Lord at the vigil and feast of Pentecost has a special poignancy, a special majesty, since according to tradition, the apostles first celebrated Mass on the day of that first Pentecost, after they had received the outpouring of the Holy Ghost. As the solemn vigil Mass continues, we notice an important difference with respect to the Vigil Mass of Holy Saturday. On that occasion, the Agnus Dei was not recited, and the clergy did not exchange the customary kiss of peace. 
The final petition of the Agnus Dei, of course, asks the Lord to give us his peace. Dona nobis pacem. That omission made perfect sense on Holy Saturday. The Lord did not appear to his apostles in the upper room until after the resurrection, on that first Easter Sunday, as we read in St. John's Gospel, chapter 20. When it was late that same day, the first of the week, and the doors were shut, when the disciples were gathered together for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples therefore were glad when they saw the Lord. The Vigil of Pentecost, however, is celebrated when it is already Paschal Tide, and, so, and so there is no incongruence in the sharing of the sign of peace of the risen Lord as there would have been at the Easter Vigil when we were still waiting for the resurrection of Christ, who had not yet manifested his risen glory. Mass then proceeds as usual to the end, which is another difference from the Easter Vigil. The communion antiphon is sung as usual, not like on Holy Saturday, when it was replaced by an abbreviated form of Vespers. The first Vespers of Pentecost will be celebrated in the usual way with all five psalms and the hymn later on in the afternoon as an independent service and not attached to the Mass. Now we reach the end of these lengthy considerations, having in fact but barely scratched the surface of the mysteries of the great Feast of Pentecost and the solemn vigil by which our Mother the Church prepares us for them. Let us beg the Holy Ghost to prepare our souls for a worthy celebration of this feast with the spirit of true children of the Church. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Act of Consecration to the Holy Ghost 
on my knees before the great multitude of heavenly witnesses, I offer myself, soul and body, to thee, eternal Spirit of God. I adore the brightness of thy purity, the unerring keenness of thy justice, and the might of thy love. Thou art the strength and the light of my soul. In thee I live and move and am. I desire never to grieve thee by unfaithfulness to grace, and I pray with all my heart to be kept from the smallest sin against thee. Mercifully guard my every thought, and grant that I may always watch for thy light, and listen to thy voice, and follow thy gracious inspirations. I cling to thee and give myself to thee, and ask thee by thy compassion to watch over me in my weakness. Holding the pierced feet of Jesus, and looking at his five wounds, and trusting in his precious blood, and adoring his open side and stricken heart, I implore thee, adorable spirit, helper of my infirmity, so to keep me in thy grace, that I may never sin against thee. Give me grace, O Holy Ghost, Spirit of the Father and the Son, to say to thee always and everywhere, Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Amen. Prayer for the seven gifts of the Holy Ghost. O Lord Jesus Christ, who before ascending into heaven did promise to send the Holy Ghost to finish thy work in the souls of thine apostles and disciples, deign to grant the same Holy Spirit to me, that he may perfect in my soul the work of thy grace and thy love. Grant me the spirit of wisdom, that I may despise the perishable things of this world and aspire only after the things that are eternal. The spirit of understanding, to enlighten my mind with the light of thy divine truth. The spirit of counsel, that I may ever choose the surest way of pleasing God and gaining heaven. The spirit of fortitude, that I may overcome with courage all the obstacles that oppose my salvation. The spirit of knowledge, that I may know God and know myself and grow perfect in the science of the saints. The spirit of piety, that I may find the service of God sweet and amiable. The spirit of fear, that I may be filled with a loving reverence toward God and may dread in any way to displease Him. Mark me, dear Lord, with the sign of Thy true disciples and animate me in all things with Thy spirit. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.